friends, I'm Jeffrey Rosen, President and CEO of the National Constitution Center, and welcome to We the People, a weekly show of constitutional debate. The National Constitution Center is a nonpartisan nonprofit chartered by Congress to increase awareness and understanding of the Constitution among the American people. Friends, you know that we are doing a deep dive on the First Amendment to celebrate the unveiling of the First Amendment tablet, as well as this cornerstone of our freedom. And I'm thrilled and honored to convene this week two of America's greatest free speech thinkers to discuss the history and current debates over free speech. Jacob Mishangama is founder and executive director of Justitia, a judicial think tank based in Denmark. He's the author of the path-breaking new book, Free Speech, A History, From Socrates to Social Media. Jacob, it is an honor to welcome you to We the People. Jeff, it's an honor to be to be on. Uh, I was I was delighted to uh, when, when the email uh, invitation uh, popped into my inbox, and uh, to have this conversation also with David is a, is a great honor and a privilege. So thank you. It's a privilege for me to convene. And David Cole is national legal director for the ACLU. He's argued landmark First Amendment cases before the Supreme Court, including the Masterpiece Cake Shop case, flag burning cases, and the Mahoney Area School District BL case in 2021. David, it is a great honor to welcome you to We the People. Great to be here. Thanks for having me. Jacob, I learned so much from your book. I read it with such excitement. And you begin with the fundamental disagreement about free speech among Democrats today, which you trace back to a clash between two perspectives on speech that originated in the difference between Athenian democracy and Roman republicanism. Tell us about the difference between the Athenian and Roman conceptions of free speech and its relevance for today. Yeah, so the Athenian democracy goes back some 2,500 years ago, and by the standards of its day, not by our standard, it was quite radically egalitarian in that all freeborn male citizens had a direct voice in political affairs. So it was a direct democracy. Everyone, even if you were poor, uneducated, you could speak, discuss, and and vote on the law. So that was uh, the concept uh, called isagoria, or equality of speech. But they also had a broader a concept of free speech called parousia, which means something like uninhibited speech, which was a broad tolerance of social dissent and which allowed Socrates, until he was executed, <laughs> to uh, to accost people in the agora, in the marketplace. Uh, so, so in that sense, it was a, an egalitarian democratic ideal of free speech, whereas the Romans had a much more narrow, uh, I would say, top-down elitist conception of free speech, one in which educated, wealthy elites were the were the institutional gatekeepers and one that kept sort of the unwashed mob, the plebs, out of political uh, decision-making. Um, and I argue in the book that we see this, uh, these two concepts contesting uh, over and over again throughout history when you have new technological developments in communications technology and when you try to expand the public sphere to previously marginalized uh, groups, whether, you know, it's, it's women, racial minorities, religious minorities, and so on. But so, yeah, I, I, I basically say that, that 
you know, we have to go all the way back to, to antiquity to, to fully understand the, the roots of free speech. Of course, many additional layers of our conception of free speech have been added since the Athenian democracy. They didn't have a, a constitution. They didn't have a, a conception of individual rights. They didn't have a uh, separation of powers uh, and the like, uh, which was one of the reasons Socrates was found guilty and, and, and executed. Yes, it's so fascinating. You discussed the debate about whether Socrates was executed for religious or political impiety and say there's a disagreement on the question, but emphasize the central Athenian roots of our current debates. David, you wrote a really important piece in the New York Review of Books in 2017, Why We Must Still Defend Free Speech. And you defended the classical liberal conception of speech both against egalitarian claims that the protection of racist uh, speech uh, can't be tolerated and against efforts to have top-down control of the internet. Both can be traced back, as Jacob suggests, to this Athenian-Roman distinction. But tell us why you think that the classical defense of free speech is still relevant despite these challenges from both sides. Um, Thanks. Well, really interesting, the, the difference between the Greek and the Roman approach here. And, and I do agree that, um, you know, it continues. You know, I, I, the way I think about it, this notion of the marketplace of ideas leading towards truth. And, you know, sometimes when we talk about that, the idea is just everybody gets in there and engages on a free uh, and equal footing, and somehow the truth emerges. You know, that's a model. Uh, I'm not sure it's a very persuasive model. I mean, you know, the, uh, I think the social media today is an example of that where almost anybody can get on there and say anything. Uh, and there, I think the real question, does it actually lead towards truth? Uh, I think another model, um, which is the more elitist model is the classroom, right? Where you are engaged in a conversation that is attempting to, you know, identify some kinds of truths. Um, but it is a moderated one. It is a supervised one. It is one in which there is a hierarchy. Um, you know, and I often ask my students, you know, which, which do you think, you know, you would learn more from? A classroom in which, you know, I kind of try to discipline the conversation or one in which anybody can say whatever they want, whenever they want, uh, on whatever topic they want. Uh, and I think, you know, the most people, uh, the reason they pay to go to law school other than get a law degree uh, is because they actually think, you know, we're actually going to learn more if we have this kind of, um, uh, some kind of um, uh, exercise of, of, of editorial control. And that's what we've had in the media uh, uh, for a long time. Uh, that's what I think is challenged by social media. Now, that is not really, that's more responsive to what Jacob just said than it is to what you asked me, Jeff, about my piece um, uh, about uh, why I think equality and free speech are not at odds. I'm happy to talk about that as well. But I just think this, 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 uh, the social media moment brings to the fore the very debate uh, that Jacob starts his fantastic book with, um, which is, you know, what is the best way um, to organize conversation in a polity. It really does, in just the way that you say. And and Jacob closes his great book with some brilliant reflections on social media. I'd love, Jacob, to take us up through history so that we, the people listeners, first of all, read the book. I really know that you'll learn much from it, but also have a sense of some of its core insights. And, And Jacob, in between your discussion of ancient beginnings, 
you have two chapters, the not-so-dark ages, uh, inquiry and inquisition in medieval Islam and Europe, and then the great disruption, Luther, Gutenberg, and the viral reformation. And in the Luther chapter, you just talk about how the printing press transformed the free speech debate from Luther, uh, both translating the Bible and pinning up his theses. And then you introduce this fascinating example of the Milton effect, where someone like Milton first defends free speech, and then, like so many other great free speech heroes afterward, comes to suppress it when it becomes inconvenient. A lot to cover there, but but give us a sense of the transition from the Greek and Roman debates up through the technological revolution introduced by Luther and the printing press. You know, for a long time, many uh, historians presented uh, the Middle Ages as, as sort of the Dark Ages, which I think is is a bit unfair. Now, I think it's true to say that that nothing like the concept of free speech that we saw in in, in Athens or or the Roman Republic really survived because you, in general, you didn't have representative governments. You would have these um, monotheistic empires, basically, uh, that were not specifically welcoming to uh, to dissent, whether religious or political. But we do see that in the Abbasid Caliphate and its adjacent territories, so, so the most powerful Islamic polity uh, that arises, the caliphs there. Um, basically translated most Greek uh, philosophy and science, and they also had sort of very sketchy control over their territories. And this um, sort of fostered a, uh, a culture of inquiry and led to some of the most radical free thinkers. Now, these were not mainstream thinkers, but they were free thinkers that, that openly questioned um, revealed religion, prophecy, holy books, uh, which 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 was quite a big step at the time, um, and 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 were much more radical free thinkers than you had in in contemporary Christendom at the time, uh, and 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 I think the Islamic, uh, the, the Abbasid Caliphate also contributed to um, pagan philosophy, Aristotle uh, being retransmitted into the West, um, and where universities became absolutely essential to sort of. Uh, uh, connecting the neural circuitry in in Europe's collective brain, if you like, um, and and you know even though these were pious Christian scholars um, who 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 tried to use reason and and pagan philosophy to to understand the eternal truths of God, they sort of pushed the limits of reason and inquiry uh, constantly uh, and constantly clashed with with sort of uh, with both the Catholic Church and, and universities that tried to impose what we, what we might call medieval speech codes, sort of trying to say, oh, no, you can't teach Aristotle. And then, you know, you see academic freedom more or less becoming a competitive advantage for, for universities. You basically, you know, scholars will leave if you don't allow them to push uh, the boundaries of, of the permissible. And I think that, you know, so even though you don't have free speech or, or academic freedom in, in anything like the sense that we understand it today, I think it plays an incredibly important role towards later developments. Of course, at the same time, you also have the medieval inquisition. So this is, again, an example of where you can have some tolerance of of, of heterodoxy among elites who speak Latin at uh, universities, but you, you can't have heretical ideas running, roaming freely around among the population, though that's where you need to, to stamp down uh, authority and, and the Catholic Church and, and, and rulers will do that. Um, and of course, the authority of the Catholic Church is then 
very much uh, undermined by by Martin Luther. It's interesting that initially the Catholic Church is very welcoming of the printing press because it allows them more efficiently to communicate orthodoxy and its ideas. You don't have to rely on ill-educated priests to, to, who who will sort of mess up the, the the core contents of Catholic orthodoxy. Uh, but then you know. An ornery, constipated German monk comes along and, and spoils the party with his, <laughs> with his ideas. And and Luther, you know, if he was on Twitter today, would probably be the most followed, uh, have the most followers of all, because he he just generates, uh, you know, he, he's an expert in religious populism. So instead of writing these dry theological treatises in Latin, he writes in the vernacular uh, German. He writes short, punchy. He, you know, he he he. He uses cartoons and memes, uh, and so he, he he basically appeals to the ordinary citizen, and he places a lot of emphasis on literacy. So you see a huge difference in literacy in, in Protestant and, and Catholic countries. But it's, I think it's really important to stress that Martin Luther is not a champion of principled of a free universal freedom of conscience of free speech. In many ways, I think the unintended consequences of the Reformation for for freedom of conscience and freedom of expression are, are much more significant than than what Luther intended. Luther saw or argued that you know the, the Catholic Church had corrupted Christianity. He had the truth, and so he wanted everyone to partake of that truth, but stray from Martin Luther's truth, and he was not so tolerant. So he so he ends up advocating the death penalty for blasphemers, and and you know ends up with these rabidly anti-Semitic tracts. Um, that you know were used by the Nazis for propaganda, but the genie was out of the bottle. There was no sort of putting things together. So when you allow ordinary people literacy, when you allow them to peer into the Bible for themselves, they will generate their own ideas that won't be in accordance with with Luther's or any other idea. So you have pluralism, and that over time generates a movement towards uh, heterodoxy, towards uh, tolerance, and so on. Even though the path would be extremely bloody and disruptive. Uh, uh, and I hope our current sort of uh, digital age won't be as disruptive and bloody as, 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 as what followed from after the Reformation and the printing press. Such a fascinating history. So distressing to learn about Luther's anti-Semitic tracts and also his own uh, version of the Milton effect. And yet, as you note, uh, today populations in Lutheran states like Denmark, Sweden, and Norway are among the most secular and liberal in, a, in the world in a way that uh, Luther would not have uh, anticipated. David, um, Jacob's uh, thesis that Gutenberg and Luther transformed speech is powerful, and others have noted the connection between new printing technologies and revolutions in speech, including Akilah Marr in The Words That Made Us, where he talks about the invention of the broadside press as being central to free speech at the time of the founding. As you look at the history of American free speech, and we, we think of landmarks like the debates over the Alien and Sedition Acts in 1798 and the Sedition Acts of 1917, as well as the cases you argued, what do you think is the relation between new technology and advances in our understanding of free speech? So I think it plays a critical uh, role. I love the idea of Luther on Twitter. Um, uh, and and uh, if only um, Luther could get more followers than uh, Donald Trump, uh, that would be, uh, I think that would be a good thing. I'm not sure. Um, but, uh, you know, so, so, so I think absolutely, look, technology and the way in which we speak, the way in which we exchange ideas, where we exchange ideas, how we do it, how accessible that is to ordinary folks, that obviously very much affects the facts on the ground 
which then free speech theory has to and and practice has to deal with. And so, you know, the introduction of uh, radio and television uh, raised a whole set of uh, questions. Uh, Cable television raised a whole set of questions. Social media is now raising a whole set of questions that um, technology sort of changes some of the critical facts in ways that cause us to have to kind of rethink where should authority lie, how should authority be exercised, what's the relationship between private power and uh, and, and government power. Uh, and those are super hard and difficult questions. I will say, though, that I think, um, you know, that that's obviously just one part of the dynamic. And I think when you look at the history of American free speech, the other part of the dynamic is the use of free speech to push for free speech, right? The, 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 the sense in which um, movements, political organizations and um, causes really used what the First Amendment promises them to demand what they were seeking. And in doing so, were often faced with repression, uh, by the government, which then caused them to argue for those um, First Amendment values so that they could continue engaging in what they were doing. And so, you know, I think if you look at what drove the development of First Amendment law in the United States in particular, you would you would point to the union movement, the labor movement, uh, which was an effort by people to, you know, come together in uh, search of certain kinds of uh, values to use their association and their protest and uh, their collective uh, uh, power, uh, then co- you know companies and and the state sought to repress them, and that led to a whole series of uh, constitutional confrontations and decisions. And the same thing um, with respect uh, to the Communist Party. The Communist Party sought to use uh, uh, free speech to spread its uh, its ideas. Um, we saw ourselves as in a a grave battle with uh, communism for for so much of our um, of the period when the First Amendment was developing, uh, the state uh, sought to suppress those particular ideas, and it was through the lessons of um, what goes wrong when the government seeks to suppress, you know, labor organizing or communism or socialism, uh, the kinds of excesses that that leads to, that we ultimately developed in this country uh, fairly stringent um, protections uh, for free speech. So yes, technology complicates the issue and presents uh, uh, lots of different uh, sort of facts that the doctrine and the theory have to deal with, but also people's engagement and use of their First Amendment rights um, has been equally critical, I think, in the, in the way uh, free speech doctrine has developed in the United States. Thank you for that central reminder that, as you say, fights of particular groups, union organizers, communists, uh, Whig dissenters, and religious dissenters has been just as important as technology in our free speech debates. Jacob, we now approach the seeds of the Enlightenment, as you put it in uh, chapter four, and you discuss how battles over religious freedom, in particular efforts to protect Protestant dissenters in countries like Holland and England, was central in free speech. Uh, You identify Spinoza as one of the great defenders of what he called the end and aim of liberty, 
which is, uh, in a free state, as Spinoza put it, according to you, everyone is at liberty to think as he pleases and to say what he thinks. I have to say that phrase leapt out at me because Jefferson used a version of it in a 1799 letter, and Jefferson seems to have borrowed the phrase without attribution from Cato's letters, where the Whig polemicists talk about the right to think what he will and to act as he thinks. Um, They must have gotten it from Spinoza, uh, which you um, so powerfully quote. What I'd love you to share with We the People listeners is how those battles over religious freedom of conscience in the 17th century shaped our modern understandings of speech, both in England and in Holland, and and, and give us a sense of the the major thinkers, uh, Spinoza, Milton, Cato's letters, and so forth. Another another huge topic, but you tell such a rich story. Give us a flavor of it. Yeah, no, uh, it's true. The 16th century is 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 very important. It, free speech is is sort of bubbling up. Uh, it hasn't become sort of fashionable as to the extent that it will in the 18th century, but. I think you know I might want to start in in England with uh, with the so-called levelers because I think there's a a more direct link with the First Amendment uh, with the levelers than there is with with Spinoza. In in many ways, I think Madison's sort of draft of uh, of, of the First Amendment and his ideas that he sets out in in his report uh, of eighteen hundred criticizing the Sedition Act unacknowledged, but but in, to, to a very large ex- extent sort of uses leveler ideology. So the levelers are, are these this small group of, of English radicals who argue for universal toleration, press freedom, and incredibly important universal male suffrage uh, uh, during uh, the, the turbulent 1640s where you had uh, an English uh, civil war. And, you know, they're much more radical in the defense of free speech than Milton. As you, as you mentioned, I... I, I Sort of use the term Milton's curse in the book to, because Milton is someone who writes uh, *Aeropagitica* in in 1644 to decry licensing the reintroduction of pre-publication censorship. But if you read him more carefully, despite his eloquence, uh, he really does, is not in favor of protecting Catholics. He comes to support blasphemy law, and he ends up serving as a censor under Cromwell. Whereas the the Levellers are, you know, they are much more principled, not perfect, but but you know, they defend. Both, you know, they both they're both critical of pre-publication censorship and post-publication consequences. So, so um, and 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 really sort of link the idea of early types democracy with with free speech, and also the idea that free speech is essential for, for liberty. And they also crucially, I think, argue um, that you have to, def- in order for free speech to thrive, you have to defend your ideological enemies uh, and be principled. And this is, of course, where where Milton fails. And their ideas. Um, don't survive because they're basically uh, put in in, in prison. Um, but but then later on you have, as you mentioned, Cato's letter and Cato's letter, especially Cato's letter number fifteen, which has this great meme, the great bulwark of liberty, uh, which goes viral in the colonies and really I think is essential to to the to the culture of free speech uh, in in the American colonies that will help. Uh, defeat, I think, British efforts to to resist the revolution. You know, a contrast that, you know, this is a a quote in in 1671 from Virginia's governor, William Berkeley. He says, I thank God there are no free schools, nor printing, and I hope we shall not have these for 100 years, for learning has brought disobedience and heresy and sex into the world, and printing has devolved them and libels against the best government, God keep us from both. So there's a huge difference between 1671 and and 1776 when you have Virginia's uh, uh, 
uh, Bill of Rights, uh, and, and and Virginia sort of becomes a, a hotbed for for free speech ideology. Um, uh, so so that's sort of the connection between England, seventeenth uh, uh, century England, and America. But as you you're also right that the Dutch Republic becomes sort of the printing house of Europe. I would say in the seventeenth century. Now it's not due to any legal protection or constitutional protection of free speech. It's more to do with the fact that the Dutch Republic has revolted against the Spanish Habsburgs. And so at least on paper, religious freedom becomes really important, but but more importantly, sort of autonomous rule. So the provinces are very jealous of, of, of their, their ability to rule themselves. So you don't have any centralized command and control of information. And the Dutch are also very much into commerce. So they, you have what I call the Dutch dark web in that Dutch printers will print things uh, that can be printed nowhere else in Europe, and then they'll export it, you know, uh, across lines of censorship. And and someone like Spinoza thrives in that uh, also cosmopolitan atmosphere and writes his very consequential book, which, by the way, becomes one of the most censored books in, in all history. But it's also, you know, René Descartes becomes uh, moves to the Dutch Republic, uh, Pierre Bale and John Locke. So it, it really becomes sort of a um, a haven, if you like, even though there are it's certainly not uh, free speech absolutism or or, or religious freedom uh, for all comparatively the the free speech and and, and religious freedom is um, you know thrives in the dutch republic and really sows the seeds for for the radical enlightenment in in, in places like france so 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 in that sense it, I, I think the dutch republic plays an outsized role uh, for for the development both of the, the practice and principle of of free speech uh, in especially in europe Yes, so powerful of you to resurrect the role of the Dutch Republic, where, as you say, Locke and his patron, the Earl of Shaftesbury, took refuge. And also, you resurrect the role of the most prominent levelers, Richard Overton, William Walwyn, and freeborn John Lilburn, the Puritan who was pilloried in 1638. I always taught Lilburn in criminal procedure as an example of the Fifth Amendment right against self-incrimination. Nemo tenetur, no man is bound to accuse himself, he said, in refusing to answer questions before the Star Chamber, but you resurrect him as a central free speech hero. David, um, Jacob's history here was unfamiliar to me when, when I think of the paradigm cases at the heart of American free speech I think, of course, of the battles over the Alien and Sedition Acts in 1798, and perhaps the Zenger trial as well. What episodes uh, would you single out? And if, if, if you think Zenger and the Sedition Act controversies are relevant, tell we, the people listeners, those stories and their relevance for our understanding of free speech. There's so many stories that are um, critical to our understanding of free speech. and But I, I actually think that the modern First Amendment really comes out of the battles that started in the early part of the 20th century. And we, we, we go back to when we, you know, when the court ultimately uh, starts announcing robust First Amendment protections, it points us back to uh, the Zenger trial and it points us back to the Alien and Sedition Acts but of course, at the time, the, the Sedition Acts were, were not uh, uh, declared unconstitutional. Um, the people did go to jail for uh, engaging in sedition. The Alien Act, uh, I, I think, is actually still on the books, essentially, as the Enemy Alien Act today, uh, which allows the government to lock people up simply because of their nationality during a during a, uh, a war. But it's really the 
World War I uh, and folks who are opposed to uh, the war being uh, singled out and prosecuted um, that led to the first real constitutional decisions in the Supreme Court on free speech, and they were all losers. The, 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 you know, if you spoke out against the war, you went to jail, and you went to jail for, uh, in, in, in some instances, for, uh, for 20 years. Um, and it was, uh, you know, it was really the, the lone dissenters of uh, Justice Holmes and Justice Brandeis who spoke out against that, but they were, you know, they were very much in dissent. And so, um, so I think, you know, although there were obviously free speech di- disputes in this country and uh, before that period, and David Rabin has written quite a lot about that, um, the real sort of doctrine and the modern First Amendment was born in the struggles around uh, around World War One, which turned into the struggles around anarchism and uh, communism and World War Two and the civil rights era and the like, you know, up to up to the current day. So, so in our country, I think the concepts of free speech, while they have lots of parallels to the to the history that uh, Jacob's book so fascinatingly details, we really have kind of a hundred year history of. Uh, of free speech in terms of enforceable protections backed by courts that people could rely on. And it's uh, so it's a much more recent history. Jacob, David is surely right that in practice, uh, free speech in America was not meaningfully articulated by the Supreme Court until the dissents of Holmes and Brandeis of the 20th century and uh, those battles over free speech. But tell us more about what the chapter you call Constructing the Bulwark of Liberty, where you quote both the Revolutionary Era state constitutions, which, uh, quoting Cato's letters in the Virginia Declaration of Rights, say that the freedom of the press is one of the great bulwarks of liberty and can never be restrained, and then Madison's Virginia resolutions criticizing the Sedition Acts by emphasizing that the right to criticize public officials is central to democratic government. To what degree was did, was an American innovator in free speech during the founding era? And to what degree was it simply codifying ideas that had arisen earlier? So I think obviously there's a, a great heritage, uh, especially to Cato's uh, letters. But I think obviously the Sedition Act is a low point. You know, it's the First Amendment is ratified in 1791, and then in seven years later, you have you have the Sedition Act enacted by people who would passing themselves off as, as defenders of free speech when rebelling against the British. However, I think that. Throughout the 18th century, a culture of free speech develops in in uh, in the colonies, that which means that the backlash against free speech uh, after the French Revolution that you see in Europe is much less uh, violent and brutal in the U.S. than elsewhere. So you know, of course, the, the, in France, you know, the, the French Revolution uh, degenerates into sort of a hunt for political heretics. In in Britain. Prime Minister Pitt uh, initiates this campaign against sedition. Uh, Tom Paine is, is lucky to escape out of the country. Uh, he's, you know, habeas corpus is suspended and several hundreds of people are prosecuted for their ideas. And, and in continental Europe, uh, especially, you know, after the dangers of the French Revolution are avoided, you know, it's back to, to, to altar and throne. Very different picture in the U.S. And I think part of that is because, you know, after the Sanger case, it becomes impossible 
to have someone convicted for seditious libel through jury trials. Uh, you, you, you can't even get grand jury to indict someone um, because there's this idea that free speech is the, the, the bulwark of liberty. You still have um, parliamentary privilege and, and, and other such things. But I think the genius of Madison is he basically takes the idea, you know, Cato's letters is mostly concerned with protecting free speech against the executive branch, so and not so much about, about popular sovereignty. So basically, Madison marries those two ideals, sort of egalitarian free speech uh, and protection against uh, executive uh, arbitrary power. And I think that's, that's, that's the real innovation there on the part of Madison and, and on the First Amendment. And of course, the first draft of the of what will become the First Amendment includes language from uh, from Cato's letter number fifteen. Uh, number fifteen doesn't survive, uh, and also I think Madison is very f- uh, far sighted in that he actually tries to have a uh, a protection uh, against state uh, state encroachments on, on free speech that doesn't survive either. And and I think he was absolutely right to sort of stress that the greatest danger against free speech would not necessarily come from the federal government, but from state governments. And, and we would see that, of course, in the 19th century in Virginia, where, you know, in the 1830s, you have draconian laws enacted against abolitionist ideas. You have them all over the South. And in, in some Southern states, you'd even have the death penalty formally for, for spreading abolitionist ideas. You'd have President Andrew Jackson, who tried to enact a federal uh, law to sort of prohibit the Postal Service from distributing abolitionist materials to, to southern states. But in that sense, I think there was some real genius on the, on the part of, of Madison. And I think, you know, he, he makes the case very, in, in the resolutions and the, the report of 1800, uh, why the American model of free speech is very different from the British model, which is a very elitist one. And George Hay makes it, uh, another Virginia lawyer, makes it probably uh, a bit, bit more polemical, but he basically says, you know, it, you know, yes, sedition laws are are necessary, may be necessary in, in, in Britain to protect the power and privilege, but in the US it's a disgrace. I completely agree with David. Th- those, those ideals would not be realized uh, until much later. In fact, you could say, Madison's idea, his, his criticism of of sedition laws, uh, will that always pop up like like zombies, won't be sort of decapitated until New York Times versus Sullivan in, in I guess in 1964. But the idea is there, and and that is a, a novelty and goes much further than almost anywhere in Europe on the continent. So many fascinating points uh, you've just shared, including the idea that Madison merged the federalist idea of uh, top-down restrictions on executive power with the uh, anti-federalist idea of more egalitarian speech. And he expressed it in that report of 1800, which was uh, unfamiliar to me, as well as uh, the works of George Hay. And then your central point that the difference between the U.S. and France was that the U.S. developed a free speech culture and Americans had become more accustomed, as you put it, to a more vibrant public sphere. And that was more significant than the difference of the wording between the First Amendment and the equivocal nature of Article 11 of the French Declaration of Rights. Um, David, do you agree or not with Jacob's interpretation of the importance of a culture of free speech as being central to the American experience? And how would that have explained the fact that it was around the time of World War I that Holmes and Brandeis began to enshrine this understanding of free speech into law. 
So, yeah, I mean, I think culture is so critical when it comes to free speech. It's, you know, do you have a culture of tolerance or do you not have a culture of tolerance? And do you have a culture in which the rights of ordinary folk to get together to um, advocate for what they believe, even if it is uh, uh, disapproved of by the authorities, is so, uh, so central. Um, But, you know, I, I, and I think it's really, um, it is really powerful in the United States today. Um, it has, it wasn't always that way. I, I think Jacob's right. There were sort of the, these ideas were there, but there was also the counter, uh, idea. And I think, you know, the times when it's sort of most tested are when the nation is most on, you know, in crisis or feels most threatened. Um, uh, so, you know, World War One, uh, World War Two, uh, you know, 9-11, um, you know, these are moments where the nation feels threatened and tolerance is most tested. And we weren't uh, uh, particularly tolerant in World War I at all. Uh, and, you know, yes, Holmes and Brandeis argued for, uh, for tolerance, but uh, again, their views were, were only in dissent. We weren't particularly tolerant in the between war periods, and we obviously were not tolerant in uh, in World War II, um, and we weren't t- particularly tolerant after 9-11 either. Um, uh, so, you know, those are, the, those are the periods where this culture of tolerance is tested. But I think what is uh, important about the First Amendment story in the United States is that we have tended to learn from those moments of intolerance and to recognize after the fact, uh, sadly, it's almost always after the fact, uh, that the intolerance was unjustified, that the intolerance was counterproductive, that the intolerance was a mistake. And in response to that, we have generally strengthened the protections for speech with an eye towards the risk that intolerance will rise at particular moments. And we need uh, strong bulwarks of liberty, to borrow the term, and, you know, I think we actually have them now, not only on paper in the sense of judicial decisions like Brandenburg, and uh, which says that you can't, you know, be thrown in jail for advocating criminal activity unless it is, your speech is intended and likely to produce imminent criminal activity, which is a very, very high standard, or scales versus the United States, which says you can't be punished for being associated with a group that advocates and uh, or engages in illegal activity unless you specifically intend to further its illegal activity, so guilt by association is not sufficient. Those are really important bulwarks on paper, but I think more to the point, more important, they're pretty broadly accepted in our culture. Uh, and you know, I think they're they're under test today uh, in in ways that have uh, that we haven't seen in in the last couple of decades, um, but they're still pretty strongly instantiated as compared to many many other countries. And so, you know, I think you look around the world; almost everybody's constitution has some free speech protection in it. But very few countries have the kind of strong civil society enabled by the First Amendment, exercising First Amendment rights to check government efforts in times of crisis to crack down on those with whom it disagrees. So culture is absolutely critical. Without it, uh, it's just words on paper. I'm fairly optimistic about our culture today. uh, And I think if I'm worried, 
Um, it is, um, you know, this concern that social media is actually really, the dynamics of social media is changing our culture um, in ways that are um, quite disturbing and I think lead towards far less understanding of the need for tolerance uh, than we um, have had, uh, you know, in recent years. Well, let's talk now about the central question of the culture of free speech today. Jacob, you wrote a piece in Foreign Affairs called The War on Free Speech, Censorship's Global Rise, where you note that despite the fact that free speech continues to uh, have formal protection in America and the legal protections afforded by the First Amendment remain strong, for many Americans, the underlying idea of what some First Amendment scholars have called free speech exceptionalism has lost its appeal. And you talk about the combination of a consensus among elites that free speech on the internet can harm democracy rather than help it, to growing calls from minority groups and on campus uh, that say that uh, minorities need uh, protections against the harmful effects of speech, all of which are challenging a culture of free speech protection. Disaggregate those different challenges to free speech exceptionalism and talk about how they're playing out in the age of the internet. Yeah, so I think a good example is in 2006, as a junior senator, uh, Barack Obama posted a blog or a podcast where he sort of said that the internet uh, is, uh, is it's great. It basically allows me to say whatever I want without censorship. Uh, and of course, he won the, the, the so-called Facebook generation in 2008 and, and 2012 and, and really used social media to great effect, uh, connecting with, with voters groups that, that were perhaps previously turned off by, by politics. But then in an interview with The Atlantic in 2020, he calls, you know, online disinformation the greatest threat against democracy. And that, I think, shows how institutional attitudes towards um, social media and online free expression has changed, including in the U.S. So even though I agree with David that the U.S. is ranked among the, the, the countries with the strongest culture of free speech, you know, we, we actually have a, my organization did a survey of global attitudes toward free speech in, in 33 countries, and, and I think the U.S. came in, you know, number three or four on attitudes towards uh, free speech. Um, I, I think there is this, this sense th that a lot of people are alarmed by social media, and, and some of those are, are valid reasons. I don't think you could have the, the January 6th attack on capital without social media. Uh, that would not probably have been possible. Um, but on the other hand, I think there's also uh, sort of an alarmist uh, tendency in the sense that the harms and costs are real, but sometimes also uh, exaggerated. And un unfortunately, I think sometimes traditional media, just because the, the role of uh, as the traditional gatekeepers is no longer the same as in the analog world, have a skewed incentive to also sort of exaggerate some of the harms of social media. And I think these conflicting attitudes, I think, uh, are... are specifically disturbing in a time with so much tribalism and political polarization in the U.S. So, you know, in, in 2017, there was this poll uh, in The Economist, I think, and, and a plurality of Republican voters agreed that, you know, courts should be able to shut down newspapers that came with inaccurate statements or something to that effect. So that was basically echoing Donald Trump's sort of uh, wish to uh, to reintroduce libel laws or crack down on the so-called enemies of the people. And then in 2021, uh, a majority of Democrats now wanted the government to do something about online disinformation, even though, even if it might have consequences for the freedom of information. I think that shows that, you know, 
your attitudes toward free speech is is content driven rather than principle driven uh, and so an uh, a, a trump or a biden administration's definition and enforcement of of laws against dif- disinformation and the targets they would have in mind would would likely be very very different and then you have the whole um um, um about, about minorities um and i think you know I saw some research that said that every generation coming after the so-called boomer generation has become less tolerant towards racist speech. And I think one of the reasons of that is, is that the boomer generation saw how free speech, how the expansion of First Amendment was critical in the race, in, in the fight for racial justice and, and uh, for the civil rights movement to, to ultimately triumph. And also saw that the fight for free speech culturally just expanded what you could say. Um, uh, and, and so it was free speech was seen as emancipatory, but generations that did not experience the same thing now see free speech as a threat to minorities. Also just because, and it's a bit paradoxical. So at a time where, where tolerance for minorities and acceptance of minorities has never been higher, probably, uh, those who are the most tolerant of minorities have also become the most intolerant of racist speech. So they don't see, they see basically free speech or at least extreme speech and equality as mutually exclusive, where I would argue that free speech and equality are mutually reinforcing, uh, and that the history of the First Amendment, especially sort of in the 50s and 60s, I think bears this out, because you basically have this huge expansion of First Amendment uh, freedoms to protest peacefully, uh, New York Times versus Sullivan, and so on, that that are won by uh, that by, by by the civil rights movement, uh, and but that uh, doesn't really resonate today al- along uh, uh, many who are are well who well intentioned are worried about free speech, but I but but I think if their worries concerns were turned into speech restrictive policies could very and well end up hurting the minorities that they want to protect. David, what do you think of Jacob's argument that examples of free speech advancing equality are key in shaping the views of the boomers and that the current younger generation lacks such examples and therefore is less likely culturally to attach to free speech? I'm looking now at your marvelous book, Engines of Liberty, How Citizens Movement succeed, you give examples of the marriage equality movement, the right to bear arms and human rights in the age of terror, as three movements that both mobilize the power of the courts and also that of public opinion to achieve their goals. You begin with an introduction from Learned Hands, emphasis on the importance of liberty lying in the hearts of the people, which Jacob often cites. If that's right, um, what would you advise free speech advocates to do to win the hearts and minds of the younger generation so that young people believe that it's actually important to defend the classical vision of free speech. So, um, yeah, I definitely agree that we learn from history, but we also forget history very quickly. And so, you know, in the same way that uh, there was a period where women would say, well, I'm not a feminist, um, but, you know, they were, uh, they were, they were relying for their standing in society and for their comfort in society on the struggles that feminists and women's rights uh, uh, advocates have ha- had engaged in for um, for many decades earlier. You know, if you look at the history of the sort of core battles about the protection of speech with which we, the majority, disagree, 
um, they, they really sort of go up to the civil rights movement and the 70s. And by, by that time, the court decides Brandenburg versus Ohio, uh, which I m- mentioned before. It decides scales. It decides uh, the, the, the case about guilt by association. It decides New York Times versus Sullivan, 1964. Those are the high watermarks of uh, kind of the, the, the um, First Amendment protections. You know, since then, we've sort of been fairly steady state. And uh, those are those mean that a lot of disputes about government ability to suppress speech are just, you know, we don't even have to engage in them because we spent, you know, half a century fighting over what the rules should be. We adopted a set of rules. They're very protective uh, and they greatly limit what the government can do. Now, kids, you know, growing up today, uh, they didn't live through any of that. They didn't fight for, they didn't see, you know, the, themselves or their forebears really fighting for free speech. They take, they, they, I think, take free speech for granted. Um, and then I do think that there's a, a sense often in the universities where, where sort of kids develop their, um, their ideas and their politics in a, you know, for the first time in a self-conscious way. And many universities, many elite universities are dominated by um, liberal and progressive uh, scholars for the most part. And so they get comfortable with the idea of let's suppress views with which we disagree because they trust that the people in power in those uh, institutions will suppress the right speech and not suppress the, you know, the speech that they like. Um, but that is not the way the world operates. Uh, that is a very cloistered uh, uh, view. And when you come out into the world, you know, the, the notion that uh, we should empower uh, authorities to decide whose speech is too hateful or too offensive or too racist uh, is a very, very dangerous, very, very dangerous idea. And I think will, um, you know, if accepted, be be turned against the very people who are, you know, most uh, open to it uh, today. How do we change that? That is the, you know, $64 million question. I mean, we at the ACLU have uh, undertaken an effort to try to go into universities and colleges and work with students and try to sort of do workshops to try to um, get them to understand the importance of tolerating speech with which we, with which they disagree, to get them to understand how counterproductive it is to their own interests to try to censor uh, you know, those with whom they disagree, because in many ways they just make them martyrs and give them more attention. Um, uh, but it's, you know, that's very tough work. We, we also have a, 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 a ACO is a summer institute where we bring thousands of young people into Washington and sort of train them in, in, in the principles of civil liberties and civil rights and, and specifically in, the, in, in this principle, the importance of toleration and the importance of free speech to all struggles for justice. We try to, you know, highlight when we are using the First Amendment to protect uh, the rights of those who are demanding justice, uh, such as when we sue for uh, efforts to suppress uh, Black Lives Matter protests and the like. But we also try to highlight uh, the importance of defending free speech, even for those with whom we disagree, uh, Trump supporters, um, you know, students who make racist comments on the Internet, the Americans for Prosperity, uh, Koch Brothers uh, Foundation. We think it's critically important to to both demonstrate why speech is so critical to the efforts for justice that we support and 
to underscore that for these rights to be meaningful, they have to be universal. And that means that we have to extend them to those with whom we disagree, uh, as well as using them to empower those with whom we agree. Uh, but this is, you know, I, this struggle I don't think will ever be over. Uh, I am concerned uh, with sort of the, the, the way the left has uh, has turned on the First Amendment um, to a significant degree. Um, but I think we can uh, we can push back on that. We have to push back on that. And from the standpoint of both principle and practice, it's the it's right in principle and it's critical to the practice of 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 struggling for justice, whether it be racial justice or gender justice or LGBT justice, to um, make sure that you can do it uh, through the exercise of First Amendment rights. Well, it's time for closing thoughts in this inspiring discussion. Jacob, you end your book with a galvanizing call for continuing to embrace free speech values in what you call the digital city, and you say liberal democracies must come to terms with the fact that in the digital city, citizens and institutions cannot be shielded from hostile propaganda, hateful content, or disinformation without compromising their egalitarian and liberal values. If you could, in in just a few sentences, please remind we the people listeners why it is so urgently important to protect free speech in the age of the internet. I think in many ways, you know, you cannot have a democracy, you cannot have individual freedom, you cannot have uh, autonomy without free speech. And I think that, you know, Frederick Douglass said it uh, the best. He said the right of free speech is uh, especially precious to the oppressed. But he also gave uh, a powerful uh, account of, of why free speech had to be universal, as David said, and not depend on the, on the color of your skin or, or the size of your wallet. And really, I think all the ideals and ideas that we hold dear, that critical masses in, in democracies hold dear, have been won through the exercise of the practice and, and principle of free speech. And I don't think we can just say, oh, now we've reached a perfect equilibrium. Let's pull up the ladder and ensure that those who don't agree with us don't have a right uh, to, 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 to speak out uh, their minds. Uh, and also just because my uh, when I read the history of free speech, most attempts to try and crack down on voices that were seen as as truly dangerous, the you know has been a, a cure worse than the worse than the disease. Uh, so I think uh, there are very strong reasons to uh, to keep um, the culture of free speech uh, alive, uh, even though the harms and costs have been amplified in the digital world, uh, and that they will be with us uh, going forward. David, last word in this superb discussion is to you. Why is it urgently important to continue to protect free speech in the age of the internet? First of all, thanks so much for for having me again. Um, Really fascinating conversation and um, really appreciate all you've done in uh, serving to educate and and spread the word about how important these these freedoms are. Uh, You know, I I think the, the, the greatest challenges that we face as a nation are intolerance and authoritarianism. Um, and you've seen it, you know, not just in the United States in recent years, but around the world. The rise in intolerance and the rise in authoritarianism. And the First Amendment is a antidote to both. Um, it teaches us the value of tolerance. And tolerance is absolutely critical uh, for a democracy, particularly a heterogeneous democracy like ours, 
uh, to succeed. We need to recognize some humility. We need to recognize that we don't necessarily have the truth. We need to recognize that others who disagree with us profoundly have the right to articulate their points of view. And that's, that is sort of the central teaching of the First Amendment. So that's, it's important for that. The second threat is authoritarianism. Around the world, we're seeing the rise in sort of populist authoritarians. And what do they do when they come to power? Uh, they target those institutions that are empowered by, in our country, the First Amendment, the press, uh, the universities, the nonprofit sector, critics, uh, and in some places, religious groups that, uh, the, with which uh, they disagree. That is uh, civil society. That is what the First Amendment protects. It protects the right of people to speak out, to associate, to protest, uh, to, it protects the press, it protects religion. This is the core of civil society, which is, at the end of the day, the most important protection against the rise of authoritarianism. That's why authoritarians focus on it, on those institutions, uh, when they come to power. So, um, you know, for both reasons, I think it, is, it has never been more important to kind of reinforce the principled commitment to free speech uh, that has marked this country uh, at its best and that when we have strayed from, um, uh, you know, has been this country at its worst. Intolerance and authoritarianism are the enemies and humility and pluralism, the goal. So many quotations on which to end, uh, Jacob, you quote, Mill, we can never be sure that the opinion we are endeavoring to stifle is a false opinion, and if it were sure, stifling it would be an evil still. I'm so grateful to you both for having taught and inspired We the People listeners and dear We the People listeners, one way that you can learn more is to read Jacob and David's wonderful books. And Jacob, Machangama's Free Speech, A History from Socrates to Social Media is, is, is just a definitive and, and, and galvanizing account of the struggles over free speech from the ancient world to today. Jacob Machangama, David Cole, for all you're doing to protect free speech in America and around the world and to educate uh, people around the world. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you. It was, a, it was a real privilege. Thank you to both of you. Today's show was produced by Melody Rowell and engineered by Dave Stotts. Research was provided by Colin Thibault, Sam Desai, and Lana Ulrich. Please rate, review, and subscribe to We The People on Apple Podcasts and recommend the show to friends, colleagues, or anyone, anywhere, who is eager for a weekly dose of constitutional illumination and debate. Friends, your homework this week is obvious. Please, if you want to treat yourself to learning and light, read Jacob Machangama's Free Speech, A History from Socrates to Social Media. I learned so much, and I know you will too. And always remember that the National Constitution Center is a private nonprofit. We rely on the generosity, the passion, the engagement, the devotion to lifelong learning, and the eagerness to be a full member of the Republic of Reason uh, uh, that's manifest by all of you listening to this great show. Uh, support the mission by becoming a member at constitutioncenter.org forward slash membership. 
or give a donation of any amount to support our work, including this podcast at constitutioncenter.org forward slash donate. On behalf of the National Constitution Center, I'm Jeffrey Rosen.